0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi, everyone, and welcome
1: to My Millennial Money Medical. My name is Dev Rugger and I'm your host. And in this episode, we'll go through some listener questions. Now, remember, when I answer listener questions, the main aim is to pick out the concepts associated with them because I think concepts and principles are far more important than individual specifics. And then you can then expand on that for your own situation. Now, we can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. As a full-service financial advisory business, they can help you in many ways, whether that be your requirements on general business advice, structuring, and use of multiple entities for tax minimization or asset protection purposes to protect you for the extra risk we take as medical professionals or a sounding board on ideas you have on your business. Check out altusfinancial.com.au. Let's get started. Now, if you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three aims, education, empowerment and entertainment. So, question one comes from Jessie and she asks, I would love a discussion about the financial benefits of the government's announcement about medical practitioners working rural for two to four years in exchange for no hex or help debt. Is this a worthwhile strategy when there is minimal interest on the debt? I'm just finishing up intern year and my partner and I are both doctors. So enjoy rural work a lot. And we've been working a few terms for geographic arbitrage anyways. Thanks for the podcast, Dev, helping me grow my financial knowledge from the start of my career. That's a really good question, uh, Jesse. So thanks for asking that. And congrats on uh, finishing internship and welcoming to the world of medicine and learning. Now, just a point of sort of, I guess, uh, for clarification, some of these questions uh, I've had from late last year. So that's why Jessie has just finished internship. So she would be in her resident medical officer year one, uh, based on the time frame of this question. Now, becoming a doctor is a long road, and you probably have another dare I say, 10 years before you fully qualify as a fellow, depending on the specialty, sometimes up to 15 years postgraduate medical training. But the rewards at the end of it are quite high, particularly financial rewards. Now, I'm glad you're trying to maximise your earnings and financial advantages and setting up behaviours early in your career. I think that's really, really important. The number of people that I speak to who wander through their medical career and then become a fellow and then try and establish financial behaviours is quite staggering. And it becomes very, very difficult later in your life. Now, two doctor families have a very high income, but with it comes some disadvantages. If working full time, the workloads and trying to manage a family, if you do decide to have a family, that can be quite stressful. Now, you mentioned about geographic arbitrage, which is a great concept. And this is something people should learn about and I've discussed about the concept of arbitrage in episode 26, way back in my previous life as Devraga Person Finance, where I go into specific details and also the various types of arbitrage and geo-arbitrage is one of them. But put simply, geo-arbitrage means you move to a low cost of living area while maintaining your normal income. And this is very unique in medicine because doctor's incomes are relatively stable in most metro cities in Australia you know, but if you're living in, let's say, Adelaide or Hobart, it means that you may not have as much cost of living pressures um, as much as living in Sydney or Melbourne, for example. So, for example, you don't need to spend huge amounts of money on petrol and fuel because there isn't much travelling distances to work. And you don't spend years of your life in literally traffic jams Like in Melbourne and Sydney. Now, I'm convinced in Melbourne, there actually isn't a peak hour or off peak hour anymore. It's basically peak hour all the time during weekdays and also Saturdays. So, moving to the country or moving to a less expensive place or a smaller city uh, provides some great lifestyle advantages. Now, specific to your question, in Jan 2022, The Department of Health announced a help debt reduction program for doctors and nurse practitioners who wish to work in rural, remote or very remote areas. And the definitions of rural or remote and very remote vary. But generally speaking, they use the MMM classification, not My Millennial Money, but it's the modified Monash model. And you can go to drconnect.gov.au and find out what these models are and which areas qualify and which areas don't. And I think they update the maps every 12 months based on, you know, data that they receive. Now, there are two major policy schemes subject to legislation and both require some basic qualifications. Number one, you must finish internship, which you've done. Number two, you must reside and work in a rural, remote or very remote area. Notice the key word here is and... That is, you can't drive every day to a rural area but live in a metro area and still be eligible for this scheme. At least that's the way that I understand it. And if you live and reside in MMM 6 or 7 jurisdiction, which is quite remote, you can reside and work for half the length of your program or degree. If you're in MMM 3 to 5 jurisdiction, which is semi-rural, you can reside and work for the full length of the program and study. So the more rural and remote you go, the less time you need to spend there. Now, they also say that you need to work in a general practice. Note the specialty must be general practice. Now, I don't know whether Jessie has made up her mind about becoming a GP... But uh, that was surprising to me. I I thought you could do other specialties, but Jesse, I'd suggest you do some research about this in your own spare time. But in my research, I came across that specific requirement. And the minimum level of work is 24 hours per week and you must use an MBS billing system. That is, if you work in a state-funded hospital system as a GP in a rural or remote, very remote area, you may not be eligible. Now, if you qualify and fulfill those duties, your help debt will be eliminated in full, 100%. That's not a bad deal if you really wanna work in a rural, remote, or very remote area. Now, the other major policy scheme here is, they call it the freezing of indexation of hex and help debt. This is relatively hot topic right now, given the inflation numbers and the 3.9% recent indexation of help debt as of June, 2022. If you're already working in such areas, you can ask indexation to stop. And if you qualify, you can ask for your help debt to be waived. So if you're a doctor or a nurse practitioner, and I don't know whether this applies to nurses as well, if you work in an area that qualifies as a rural, remote or very remote area, you can potentially ask the ATO to freeze the indexation of your HECS and help debt. And if you qualify, you can then go on to ask for your help debt to be waived. So it looks like you don't need to enrol in this program prospectively. You can actually enrol in it retrospectively. So you might want to clarify that. And I think that's a really important point. Now, the next thing I want to discuss about in this question is, what are the benefits of working in a rural area as a doctor? Number one, lifestyle. It's more relaxed, there's less hustle and bustle and generally, I've found, rural Australians are just nicer. They welcome doctors to their community. They welcome them, they embrace them, no matter what your background is. And I've been asked by a number of doctors who are concerned of moving to the country because they feel that'll subject them to less multiculturalism and perhaps some outright racism. In my experience, and I'm a... Australian doctor, but my background is from India. I don't think that's true. Many rural communities love having internationally trained doctors or doctors from local and diverse backgrounds and really welcome the prospect of a doctor moving into their community. So I think it's a bit of a myth that going to a rural area means that you're going to be subjugated to unpleasant experiences from an ethnicity or multiculturalism point of view. The second thing is there's a variety of work available in a rural area, including general practice and hospital-style work and a mix of on-call if you want it. Number three is patients and their problems are more diverse, including working in an Indigenous community, for example. You're going to see things you may not see in Metro Melbourne. Now, the mix of diversity of ethnicity and background... And the mix of pathology can be really rewarding and challenging. I've certainly seen some things in the country that I've never seen in the city. As a rural doctor, you're a pillar of their community. So you're usually well respected. Now, I have a colleague who's a GP who works in a small town in Victoria. And this guy is a rock star in the community. Literally, the whole town knows him and treats him with the utmost of respect. So, I think that's an advantage. Number five, rural incentives, like hex or help debt reduction or abolition programs for doctors who move to the country. Now, the MRBS, which is a medical rural bonded scholarship scheme, originally began in the year 2000 and since has been shut down. There is a workforce incentive program now and payment for doctors moving to the country to encourage them more and more. Number 6, your income can be much higher in the country than in the city. Less competition, more work opportunities, and simply more patients per doctor. If you're a GP in a rural area, your income can be double what you make in the city. If you're a surgeon in the country, you're also typically on a much higher income, usually about 50% higher, but with it comes a lot more work and in some cases a lot more responsibility in any specialty. Now, Jesse, if you do end up going rural, here are my top tips because I think there are some pitfalls to watch out for. You need to be up to date with your skill set. Sometimes working in the country with limited resources means you need to manage patients until help arrives. Now, I've been involved in caring for really sick patients until the RFDs or HEMS or a helicopter, or intensive care ambulance arrive for transport. You need to have sound clinical judgment and have a high clinical acumen. One of the things I've noticed with doctors working in larger hospitals in metro cities is that they tend to struggle to cope with pressures working in the country. Now, that's an overgeneralization I know, but this is my experience. Why is that? Well, at a larger hospital, what I've noticed... And this is a personal experience. And again, I'm not having a go at all the doctors working in big hospitals and all the nurses and all the allied health professionals and the pharmacist. You do wonderful work and we all appreciate that. But what I tend to notice is that they tend to order a lot more investigations, perhaps than what is necessary. Now, does every patient with chest pain or shortness of breath... Require a point of care ultrasound to check for pericardial effusion? In some centres, this happens. Does every chest pain require a baseline chest x-ray? You'll see terms like baseline bloods or baseline x-ray or CT used all the time. Now, if you don't have the option of having a 24-7 CT or MRI service at your whim, then you really think twice about doing such scans on patients all the time. Which means generally speaking, you need to be very, very, you know, perceptive to the clinical syndromes. Um, So I think that's why it's really important that your skill set has to be pretty good if you're going to be working long term in the country. And I think you will get it because you'll see and experience a lot more in potentially complex patients. Probably one of the most famous stories which circulates at one of my hospitals that I work in, which is a rural hospital is when a locum doctor who worked at a large tertiary hospital came to work in our small service. And the first question they asked me was, where was the ICU? My response was, you are the ICU, you are the internal medicine physician, you are the GP, you are the surgical doctor, and you are also the emergency doctor and the psychiatrist on call. And by the way, you need to cover obstetrics for medical issues. They freaked out and left the department and didn't complete the shift. So I don't really buy into this thought process that, quote unquote, I work in a big hospital or a large practice. Therefore, by definition, I'm a better clinician. In my experience, actually, I found that to be far from the truth. So brush up on your clinical skills if you want to move rural. Now, professional and personal boundaries. Doctors working in rural areas can be pillars of the community with high standing and ranking. This is a good thing. But it also exposes them to vulnerabilities which can be exploited if not careful. During my surgical training, I did rural rotations and noticed patients whom I have operated on. And, you know, they might be in the shopping centre or on the street when you're walking down the road. It was an awkward situation when they may come up and say hello. How do you respond? Having clear cut professional personal boundaries, I think, is really important. If you Google this in medicine, you will see how doctors can get caught up in the personal matters of patients, including metro and rural. And then it's just an absolute disaster. Now, my general rule of thumb for this is I don't work within 30 minutes radius of driving or where I live. It's a very personal boundary that I've set. Now, I don't ever want to see any of my patients in my community while I'm out and about. Again, that's a very personal rule. Number five is you've got to be flexible. The rural community is very diverse and often the pathology is different and sometimes more complex. You can't simply get a CT scan when you want or an MRI brain when you want or even a pathology test. Some places that I work in, there is no pathology test. We use something called iStat. We rely on that. So sometimes Follow-up is not as prompt as in the metro areas, so pathology may be delayed in their presentation. And we know health outcomes in rural communities are far worse than metro areas. The tyranny of distance, for example, is a real problem. For example, most GPs in Melbourne have an endocrinologist supporting them to manage a patient with type 1 diabetes. This is not always possible in rural or remote communities. You may be the GP managing patients with complex type 1 diabetes, particularly in children, because the nearest endocrinologist might be 500 kilometres away. So be prepared to accept some deficiencies and opportunities to learn and also have safeguards to help ensure protecting the patients who are most vulnerable. Number six, establish a network. Personally and professionally, living in the country can be rewarding, but also isolating. So make sure you have a network of people around you that you fall back on for help and support them. It's very lonely experience if you don't have that. I've been in situations in the country where I'm working alone with a nurse, and we have a really sick patient, and the nearest help is two hundred kilometres away. Some patients have died waiting to be transferred. Now you need to make sure you have systems in place to debrief after a difficult case; otherwise, mental health suffers immensely. Number seven, schooling. Unfortunately, schooling options can be limited depending on the level of rurality. You may wish to work in. So you need to accept it. Some doctors may wish to send their children out of town, maybe boarding school, which means more distance to travel. Having said this, there may be year 12 incentives in terms of exams and scoring and scaling systems if you're a rural student. Now I looked up the top 10 schools in Victoria at the time of recording this episode and only one or two were rural. Most of them are in Metro Melbourne. Number eight, specialty training. Not every country town has a neurosurgical department, as much as it would be nice to have one. So, subspecialties like oncology, pediatrics, internal medicine, ophthalmology, ENT, dermatology, they're not always available. So, if you want to do a specialty training program in the country, you may be limited. I suggest finish your training, then set up a practice in a rural area where you may have some work to do. So, in summary, Jesse, I can't give you a straight-up answer, but here's my thought process. Don't move to the country just for the financial reasons of getting your HEX paid off. Make sure you enjoy rural medicine, which sounds like you do anyway. Try it and see how you go. And choose a specialty early, which fits your rural aspirations. And of course, a two-doctor family. Any reason why you can't save your partner's income completely and invest that early And do it for the next five years. Now, I've discussed this concept in one of my earlier episodes called Couples and Money. Have a listen to it if you're keen. Good luck and well done again. Question two is from Shannon, who asks, Managing private income as a sole trader, submitting BAS, GST, super, etc. Now, the concept here is if you're a business registered for GST, you need to fill out what's called a business activity statement. And I think it's important to understand the concept of GST before we discuss the BAS, business activity statement. What is the GST? When was it introduced? And what is the function of it? GST stands for goods and services tax. The other term used overseas is called value added tax, VAT. The GST in Australia is 10%. And how does this compare to some other countries? In Brazil, it's 10%. Canada, 5%. China, 17%. France, 20%. India, up to 18%. That's the top rate. There are other rates for various goods, so it's not a flat tax. Japan, 8%. New Zealand, 15%. UK, 20%. And the USA doesn't really have one, which I thought they did. Maybe they call it something else. How much does... VAT or GST bring into the economy in major economies that have it. I can only find data for OECD countries. In Australia, it brings in about 10 to 20%. Canada, 13%. New Zealand, about 30%. Japan, 12 to 13%. And the UK, around 21%. Essentially, it's a lot of income for the government. Now, what's the background on the GST in Australia? Prior to 1999, there was no GST in Australia. So really, it only existed here for about 20 years. It came into effect officially on July 1st, 2000, John Howard's era. The actual Act was called Ants 1999, a new tax system Act 1999. I love it when lawmakers come up with lame names for legislation. Now, the primary aim was we've got to simplify the tax system. Prior to that, there was various state taxes, sales taxes, and it was really complicated. This is what America does. Each state has their own state tax system, which can get really complicated. The lawmakers, there are vehemently against a VAT nationally. Now, it's a consumption tax. The more you consume, the more tax you pay. It's important that we know this that it's in addition to the income taxes we all pay as per the ATO brackets. It's also in addition to the Medicare levy. However, having a simple 10% GST just makes it easier to administrate your business. Now, there's been problems that have arisen since introduction because overall, believe it or not, consumption has reduced. This means taxation revenue from the GST is steadily declined over the past 10 years. Now, I don't have the data past 2019, so this may have changed, but unlikely given COVID pandemic and reduction in consumption. But take that with a grain of salt. So what does the GST not apply to? It's a long list, but here it is. The GST doesn't apply to cars for disabled people, charitable activities or gifts, prepaid funerals, anything made and supplied before July of the 2000, childcare, Crown land, education, farmland, food, health and medical care. This is relevant for providers in private practice. Duty-free shops, water and sewerage and drainage fees. Religious services. Hmm, didn't know that. Religious organisations also don't need to pay tax. Now, for all intents and purposes, most things we buy outside of these services and products incur a 10% GST. It should state that in your receipt. So next time, have a look. Now, has there been any problems with the GST system? Initially, when it was introduced, we didn't have services or products made overseas. Since 20 years ago, globalisation has taken hold, and we consume products and services from overseas companies like Netflix, etc. So in 2017, they included those services and products to be susceptible to the GST. Online shopping when goods and services used to arrive in Australia of less than $1,000 values, no GST was applicable in 2018. They included GST for those items too due to the explosion of online services. Now, what's happened is obviously there's been record low interest rates in the last 10 years, and that's meant Australians are saving more money than ever before, which means less spending. Therefore, a tax on consumption doesn't really work. And there's also this problem of the black economy, that is, income earned outside of the taxation system. Australia loses around $50 billion in tax revenue due to these workarounds, which are completely illegal. They established a black economy, task forces specifically to deal with this. With electronic transactions, it makes it harder to avoid taxes. Now, there are some people advocating for introducing GST on education, health and food items. But this is a really tricky topic and beyond the scope of this episode. Now to the next part of the question, how do you fill out a business activity statement? Most businesses, including uh, healthcare businesses like GPs or non-GP specialist practices, are what's called cash accounting basis. The other form of accounting is called accrual basis, which is used by larger businesses. You can lodge your business monthly, uh, where the GST turnover has to be greater than $20 million, That's if you want to lodge your BAS statement monthly. You can lodge it quarterly if you have a GST turnover that has to be less than 20 million, or annually if you have a GST turnover of less than 75,000. Now, I used to do it quarterly when I was in private practice, and I still do it quarterly as some of my side income or side gig income is through my ABN. So, still need to fill out a BAS. My accountant does it for me. The threshold of earnings to fill out a BAS for registered businesses is anything greater than $75,000. But check with your accountant on this as it depends on the type of business or income you generate. Now, it is a due date based system. So you have gotta pay your GST by the due date and usually it should state it on the form. It used to be a paper-based form, but nowadays most of it is done through MyGov. What are the things you need to report on in your BAS or business activity statement? There are four main things. Number one, GST collected. That is, you charge customers for it, then collect it and pay it to the ATO government. It's a nice little administration task the government asks you to do so they don't need to. You do it for free because you can't charge the government for the time taken to do this, but your accountant can charge you for their time taken to do this for you. Number two is pay-as-you-go instalments if you have employees. Number three is pay-as-you-go withholding tax if you have employees. And number four is fringe benefits tax. Now, there are other minor things which may not apply to most healthcare providers, and that is a luxury car tax. Don't get me started on how stupid this tax is. Why do we have it anyway? We don't make any cars in Australia. It just makes cars more expensive here. It's ridiculous. Number two, wine equalisation tax, W-E-T. Now, I had no idea about this, didn't even know this was a thing. Basically, if you make, import, or sell wine by wholesale, there is a 29% tax on it. It is usually between the wholesaler and the retailer of the wine. Number three is fuel tax credits. This is when you may have machinery which uses petrol, and you end up paying excise tax on your fuel. But the machinery is only being used on private property. That is, If not used on public roads, you shouldn't have to pay fuel excise tax. I doubt healthcare workers bring machinery to their practices, unless maybe they drive a monster truck or something. Even then, probably not allowed. Now, the form used to be a red or pinky colour, but if online, it's just through MyGov nowadays. There are parts of the form worth discussing. If it's paper-based, there's a barcode which helps identify to the ATO who you are. The statement has dates for which the BAS is required to be filled. It also has a method of accounting listed as cash or something else. It also has your ABN and it has various options and you need to tick the one applicable to you, such as quarterly or annually. The components of the page are, number one, total sales, whether it includes GST or not, and export sales, other GST-free sales... Note, this should be included just because you're doing GST free sales doesn't mean you ignore this step. Any capital purchases for your business, any non-capital purchases, and this is where it pays to get professional advice on filling these forms. You need to fill out the total salaries and wages and pay-as-you-go tax paid. Now, the other components are there's a bit more pay-as-you-go tax withhold information which gets filled out, which is on the pink form, it's on the back form. On the ATO website, it's all just online. Then there's a summary section and a brief addition subtraction section. And at the bottom right-hand side, if you use a paper form, is what you owe and what you get a refund of. You sign the slip if it's physical and you post it back to the ATO or you can just do it online. Then you get a receipt, which you keep. For me, I pay my GST via BPAY because it's just easier. I try and do everything electronically. And to be honest, if you're a practice owner, even a sole trader... I think it's worth paying an accountant to do this. Usually, it's anywhere between 100 to 200 bucks per quarter if you're sole trader. For practices, it depends on your financial relationship with your accountant. Some charge by the hour, some charge per statement, others have a package, like 10,000 dollars per year flat rate and unlimited discussions about accounting or tax. It really depends on what um, relationship that you have with your accountant. I pay my accountant to do my best. I don't mind paying. It's worth my time. Rather than spending my own time to do it, again, worthwhile calculating your unit of time, what it's worth. I know my hourly rate on average, so every time I do something, I use it as a barometer to see if it's worth my time. For example, is it worth my time doing the gardening? Because I don't particularly like gardening. It turns out, an hour to pay the gardener is well worth my time. If I had to do it myself, it would actually cost me more, and I'd hate it. So, calculate your income per unit of time. And the other part of the question is, how do you manage your personal finances when you receive gross income and you need to factor in taxes, super, sick leave, annual leave by yourself? Now, this is where having a system is really important. It's really important to know your tax rate when you manage your own finances, if you have gross income. I had a very basic system which I followed and this is what I did. It's not for everyone though. I used to apply a 50% tax on my gross income I earned. Gross income I earned as a private practitioner is only after the service fee to the practice is paid. So let's use an um, example to highlight this principle. Amy is a GP who works for practice. The contractual agreement is she gets 65% of her gross billings. She pays a 35% service fee to the practice to provide utilities, facilities for her to practice. If her gross billings for the day is $2,000, then she pays a 35% of that to the practice, which is equivalent to around $700. Now, remember, there's a 10% GST on that, so her fees to the practice are $770 in total. This means the leftover for her is $1,230. So, her gross billings is $2,000, her service fee to the practice is $700, her GST on that service fee is $70, and her gross income is therefore $1,230. Now, if she works about eight hours per day, that's an income of $150 per hour. That's not really that flash, considering the time spent to become a fellow as a GP, for example, is around 12 years since medical school started. Now, to be honest, these incomes are probably on the higher side of the spectrum. Most GPs probably earn around $100 to $125 per hour, if that. Uh, Female GPs earn less uh, because it's well known that if you're a female GP, then you are often taking longer for your consults because patients that come to you tend to have complex problems. So, um, you know, mental health, women's health, etc. for example, it takes longer to do a pap smear or a full breast exam or, you know, consulting someone on the pros and cons of the contraceptive pill compared to, you know, uh, a consult, which is for a script or a BP check. So accounting for sick leave and other types of leave, the gross income is likely a little bit lower. Now, this is very similar to most GP practices. I'm just using that as an example. If you're a non-GP specialist, then you'll need to account for what your service fee is. Some of them are a lot higher if you're part of a practice. Depending on the practice, depending on the utilities, depending on the services, and depending on the equipment used, your service fee can be lower or higher. Generally speaking, a non-procedural doctor pays lesser fees. A procedural doctor may pay more fees. For example, if you're a gastroenterologist who's part of an endoscopy practice, the costs of running such a practice may be higher than a general practice. If you're a dentist, the costs of running a practice are definitely higher than doctor practices. So most dentists probably only get around 40 to 50% of their billings. There's also just so much more expensive equipment and regulations to abide by. So most dentists don't make as much as what the public perception is. Now, if you're a private allied health practitioner and pay a service fee, I'm not sure what the industry standard is, but I note some bigger allied health practices just employ people rather than have service fee arrangements. Now, just as an aside, it is in Amy's best interest to collect all of her gross billings into her account, then ask the practice to invoice her for the service fee, then pay the service fee. This is what a true contractor relationship should be. Maybe I'm simplifying it a little bit. Some practices take the money into their account and then keep the service fee and pay the leftover to Amy. I don't think this is completely accurate and it all depends on the ATO's perspective on whether Amy is an employee or a true private contractor. Remember, the ATO wants their payroll taxes and I know GP clinics have been audited for this anomaly, so please check with your accountant and lawyer about this. And also, it kind of irritates me that the general public think just because a physiotherapist or a doctor charges, say, $70 a consult, then they see three patients per hour, they automatically equate this to $210 per hour in earnings. It doesn't. Running a practice is not cheap. They have to pay wages to staff. They have to pay the electricity bill. They have to pay the heating bill. They have to pay superannuation. So after expenses, their gross income may just be around 100 bucks per hour. Considering the time spent to learn their trade, I don't think that's an unreasonable income. Now, I've done a detailed episode on practices and GP contracts in episode 220, if you're interested. So what do you do then after imposing a 50% tax on myself? Remember, in Amy's case, If she grosses around $1,230 per day and works five days per week, let's say, that's a weekly gross income of $6,150. Now, I would take $3,075, that is 50%, and put it in an account called tax and maybe make it an offset account against your principal place of residence. If you don't have a principal place of residence, you just leave it in that account. Do not try and be super smart and invest it. Just leave it, because that's taxation money. Then you take the other $3,075 and use a budget strategy to work out how much you need. Remember, pay yourself first, expenses, living account, mortgage and rental expenses, luxuries and emergency funds. I use the 30-30, 20-20 rule. I've done an episode for budgeting strategies in episode 218, if you're interested. Amy will then need to take some of the money and also factor in for sick leave, annual leave, superannuation. Now, she can do that as a lump sum at the start of the year or do it as she earns money. But it's having the system that's really important. Isn't a 50% tax just too high? And the answer is, it is. It's meant to be high. Essentially, it means you're taxing yourself much higher than what is the marginal tax rates because this accounts for unexpected expenses And you have a buffer or cushion. And part of that can be part of your emergency fund saving as well. Note it's your responsibility to work out your tax amounts which is liable. The ATO will come after you for their money. And if you don't have the money to pay them, they have payment arrangements and sometimes charge interest on that, on late payments. So why take the risk? Just don't muck around with the ATO. You don't want them on your back. It's not worth the risk. Now, I hope this clarifies how sole traders can work out their personal finances, but also provides an insight into the GST system and BAS statements. Now, nowadays, I'm mainly pay-as-you-go, so thank God I don't have to spend too much time on things like BAS statements much anymore. I find it really boring. And shout out to all the accountants listening, because I know you do. Thanks for what you do. Now, before we go on to the next question about financial services and products targeting nurses... Uh, we just got to take a quick break
0: and then I'll see you right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Welcome back. Just another thanks to Altus Financial for getting behind My Millennial Money Medical. We can't do this without them. Whether you're established in your career with a solid income and looking for next steps, or you're after advice about buying into or selling or opening your first practice, Altus Financial can help. Altus is offering a complimentary 15-minute chat for anyone who wants to discuss their scenario with their professional team. Check the link in the show notes below. Now, the next part uh, of the episode, just I've got a couple more questions to do, and then we might finish up with this episode. And then we'll do a part two because I've got Maybe a few more questions after that. So finish up with a couple more questions on this part one of the Q&A session, and then in the next episode, we'll do the rest of the questions. Question three is from Michael, who asks, financial services and products targeting nurses, not just doctors and allied health professionals. It seems as though if you don't have an independent practice, you're not eligible to some specialist products. I think a similar question was asked recently in one of my episodes, and I'm pretty sure there are some banks out there who specifically target healthcare workers in general. That includes doctors, nurses, physios, allied health professionals, audiologists, et cetera. I think it was St George, but don't quote me on it. Um, so, Michael, thanks for the question. I think the product landscape for various professions, it keeps changing all the time. Uh, I do note there are some brokers who specialise in healthcare workers uh, and not just doctors, you know, nurses and allied health, et cetera. So I think it's worthwhile specifically speaking to one of these brokers, particularly if you're looking for mortgages, et cetera. And I'm pretty sure there are financial advisory services that target healthcare workers as well. So um, you just need to find them. And if you have a business, I think it's a totally different ballgame because there's a lot more options when it comes to taxations and depreciation and deductions and business loans, etc which is a little bit beyond the scope of this podcast channel. My aims are more about personal finance and personal financial concepts and investing rather than just uh, business finance, which is a little bit more complex. Now, last question before we finish up this episode, and it's about property investing versus index funds from Anonymous. Which one builds faster wealth, assuming using leverage for property? Now, I tackle this exact question in episode 131 in my previous life as Dev personal finance, but I'll do it again because I think this question comes up a lot from several of my listeners and online forums. Now, let me preface this that um, it's not an easy comparison. And in this particular question, I won't go into the pros and cons of each investment, It's more of an overview based on statistics and studies that I could find, so let's get into the weeds a little bit. When it comes to property and share market, there are two main studies uh, which looked at the performance of Australian equities versus Australian property. Now, note these studies are Australian-based, so I could not find data which compares Australian property versus international equities. Uh, So it's a very complex topic, hence why this subject has to be taken with a grain of salt, because it's not an easy and direct comparison. And the questions can be quite simplistic. So in this case, we're comparing Australian equities versus Australian property. The first study was called The Rate of Return on Everything and looked at the returns from 1901 to 2015 for the Australian market. The more recent study was in 2018, called the Russell Investments ASX Long-Term Investing Report Study. I couldn't find anything more recent, which incorporated the uh, 2020-21-22 market, but I suspect there'll be someone in the future that'll do a study on that. So let's look at the first study from 1901 to 2015. What did better? Equities, 7.81%. Housing, property, 6.39%. Now, you've got to split this era up because it's quite a long time into two separate eras. The post-1950 era and the post-1980 era. Now, post-1950 up until 1980, equities did about 7.59%. Housing was 8.29%. So, housing won out. Post-1980, though, equities has been about 8.78% and housing has only been 7.16%. Now, the most important thing here is this doesn't take into account the housing boom of 2021. And this study looked at 16 economies from around the world, including UK, USA, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Sweden. And it excluded the Canadian markets, I'm not sure why. And accounting for all of those other markets, it took all the average of all of the countries and the overall results were 7.04% in equities and only 6.69% in housing. Interestingly, in most countries between 1950 and 1980, housing did better. But since 1980, equities universally beat the housing market. Now, This could be due to new investing products in the equity space, lower costs, easy entrance requirements and more widespread mainstream knowledge of investing. Again, it doesn't take into account the 2021 uh, housing property boom. Now, what about the other study? The other study is called the Russell Long-Term ASX Investment Report. Now, basically... The time period for this study was 20 years from 1997 to 2017. Again, doesn't take into account the 2021 housing boom. It showed that the Australian property performed slightly better at 10.2% compared to equities at 8.8% per annum. But if you took taxation into account, the after-tax returns was much more narrower. Equities closed the gap in low marginal tax rates, 8.8% versus property, 8.9%, so property still won out. And in higher marginal tax rates, equities was only 6.7% and property was 7.6%. Now, this makes sense because as property has a lot more deductions when compared to share portfolios and a lot more leverage is involved. Now, suppose you took into account gearing, let's say 50% for both asset classes The lowest tax bracket, equities was about 9.7%, property was 10.4%. Highest tax bracket, equities was 8% and property was 9.1%. Still, property wins out between 1997 and 2017. And again, it doesn't take into account the property boom of 2021. But it does take into account taxation, and gearing. Notice that two different studies conducted over various different time frames kind of yielded two different results. And therein lies the comparison fallacy. You can make arguments for and against property or equities based on the time frame you selected for your investment asset class. As for me, what do I prefer? I prefer stock portfolio or index funds, hands down, because it's easy. The entry barrier is very low. It's so much less hassle. It's cheaper. It's more liquid. It's relatively easily sellable. And the way that I look at it is when I'm retired or partially retired, the last thing I want to be able to do is be responsible for property maintenance, dealing with tenants, dealing with repairs, dealing with property agents, for me, having a stock portfolio or index fund portfolio is far more easier. And I'm looking at the big picture. And that's a very personal approach. And i also love the frank dividends, the imputation credit system, which I hope will stand the test of time, but not sure whether it will be existent when I retire. So personally, I feel that equities is a lot easier for me. But I can see the attraction for property, given that over a period of time in Australia, if you own property, you've done extremely well. So, you know, particularly if you bought three years ago, you've just made an easy 20% profit for nothing. So, I hope this answers your question, Anonymous. And uh, that's just my two cents. Now, at this stage, we're about 53 minutes into this episode, I've got another few more questions to go, but what I might do is I might do another episode and call it part two of the Q&A session and answer those questions in part two. So uh, hopefully that's okay because there's nothing worse than recording an episode which is like two hours long, and people just sort of tune out after the first hour. I've sort of personally found that about 40 minutes to one hour is a good time frame for an episode. Anything less than 40 minutes, you know, probably not the optimum, but it's okay. And people finish the episode. Anything more than an hour, I find that people may not finish the episode completely. And my aim is, you know, for you to absorb this information, digest it, and do your own research on it. So stay tuned for the next episode, which is going to be Q&A part two. That's it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using, or leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to my podcast, and it's free, so please keep them coming. This is Dev Raga from My Millennium Money Medical, and until next time, please make sure you stay safe.
0: We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast.